0: I think I might need to uh, speak to the transition team because the order of service may not be working here. We have such beautiful praise, we get a chance to pray together, and then we, I have to get up here. I think maybe if I I go first, what we're thankful in, different people, same spirit. I want to just personally thank Brian for leading the praise team, putting together so many different parts I can assure you they made it look easy this morning and brought us to praise. It was not so. We just thank the Lord for what he did with them. Anytime you launch something, it's good to start something. So today we will, by God's grace, be starting a series in Galatians. If you pay attention to Galatians at all, it is a letter to the churches of Galatia. It is a book of the Bible that has a really high place with the scholars. It has a place in the hearts of many. It has all kinds of accolades, if you will, put to it. It is called kind of the Magna Carta of Christianity. It has been called the Declaration of Christian Independence. It is a short book that capsulizes all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. If you didn't quite capture the theme in the songs, you have it right there for you. The freedom of Christ that we have available to us in Christ Jesus. Our risen Lord, And you hear in the news, you hear a lot about freedom fighters and you hear all these things. You're like, what do these terms mean? I would want to propose to you today that Apostle Paul, St. Paul himself, was the quintessential first freedom fighter. He was out there just battering the bushes for freedom. Join with me as we read the word that God has for us. While you're turning to Galatians chapter 1. I'll give you just a few points. Galatians is a book that kind of goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It has one theme, the freedom we have in Jesus Christ, in him alone. And it goes back and forth. So it's a little difficult to break up an entire series. So today we're going to be in chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 4. So a good friend and I were talking yesterday, and he suggested that I might mention to the congregation, it will be healthy if we read through the six chapters Of the book of Galatians every week. Do that while we go through it. And I believe I can promise you that the Lord will change you. And the book of Galatians will become real to you. And Christ will be real to us. Follow along with me. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now, that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And in chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is not different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into the heart, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us turn to him one more time in prayer. Father God, we turn to you. We turn to you to celebrate the launch of a congregation dedicated to your purposes and to the proclamation of Jesus Christ. We thank you for an announcement of engagement. But Lord, we thank you more that these things are possible, that you have preserved life on this earth because we are here to celebrate your son, Jesus Christ. We ask you, Lord, today, humbly, but ever so confidently, that you will help us see the majesty of the risen Christ, that you will help us see, through your spirit, our fallen character, the problem of sin in our life, and we ask you, Lord, to help us see as never before the cure that comes through the love of your son who gave himself for us. Lord, we ask you to redeem the time this morning, to redeem our hearts, to redeem our thoughts, and to bring us into communion with you so that we can see you, we can know you, and we can leave here glorifying you as your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If I asked you a question, what would you rather receive? What you deserve or what you don't deserve? We have two options. You get what you deserve or you get what you don't deserve. It's okay, Chuck, you can laugh out loud. I know you're holding it in. I am guessing that most of us would take the first one. All I want is what I deserve. If I can get that, I will be very good. That's the way most of us feel naturally. We feel that way quickly, but maybe when we think about it further, and you probably know there's a trick there. I know that's what I want to want. i supposed to say number two, so probably today everybody would get it right. But we are a nation of laws. We have the rule of law in our republic, in our society, and we feel pretty good about that. We think that the law is our friend. It gives us guideposts to what is good and what is true and what is right or righteous. And therefore, we are happy to be a nation of laws. If everyone would just abide by the law, everything would be good. But the law can be our biggest accuser, the biggest tyrant. It can enslave us. Because if you go outside of the guideposts, it is what accuses you. It is what judges you, and it is what condemns you. Every time I have this thought in my head, I go back to the time when we as a family, uh, and Neldo and Sandra will remember this, we would go down to Florida, we'd drive in a car, and my dad, all driving along, you know, taking a Pontiac down, here we are, we're going down to Florida, and my dad would see the cops, and he would always say, oh, look, there's a friend. Oh, look, there's another friend. And so we'd count you know, all the friends all the way down to Florida. And as a, as a young man, I, you know, I remember us getting pulled over. And so we're pulled over, and a guy took us on this long trip and stuff, and me being maybe just a little sarcastic and say, Dad, is he still a friend now? <laughs> I'm still waiting for the answer from my dad. <laughs> this translates directly into the spiritual world. Our nature pulls us towards self-reliance. We have a desire to prove ourselves. Our biggest problem is our pride. God left us with free will, and our free will manifests itself often in our pride, and we say, I need to show that I am good enough. I need to show that I can. I need to show that I'm not relying on others, that they can rely on me. I am following the law. I am doing it. I am accomplishing it. If you want to look at all the main religions of the world, they seem so different, don't they? They have different names, different ideas. But if you break them all down, they really don't. They have one idea. That there is a problem, and man needs to do better to work their way to God. We are not quite there yet, but if we did these things... And most of the tenets are fairly similar. Do unto others, love other people, be good, be nice, be gentle, be generous, be humble. Think not only less of yourself. Some of them get to the point where you're supposed to not even think of yourself. Get to the point where you don't exist. The reincarnation religions are really fun because they're like, no, we're going to get it. We will get it. Just give us a little more time. I just got to try one more time. Maybe again. And I'm not poking fun, I'm calling it a reality. All the religions of the world will come together. I don't care if it's Hindu, I don't care if it's Buddhism, I don't care if it's Islam, I don't care if it's Judaism, it'll come together to say, yes we can, give us a little more time, we just need to try a little harder and we can get to God. Christianity is the one contrast, the unique opposition to that worldview. It says, no we can't. It says that Christ came down to get us to do it for us because we couldn't do it for ourselves. Now, that's kind of cool. And that's kind of neat. And that was Apostle Paul is talking about today. I wrote it down for myself. What is our goal today? I submit to you that our goal today is to grasp that this is the good news of the gospel. That God came down in the person of Jesus Christ, his son, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Freeing us from the condemnation that we are in. Because we are just not good enough to get to God. This is essentially the letter to the Galatians. This is what Paul is writing. It is a great letter. It's a wonderful opportunity, and we will take a look at it in three parts. Number one, the controversy. Number two, the curse. And then third, the cure. Follow along with me as we take a look. Verse 1, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men... Nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. Now, the first thing we notice is when you're writing a letter to somebody, it generally it starts with a little more warmth, a little more gentleness, a little maybe more introductory greeting. You look at all Paul's other letters, he's usually gentle. Hello, I'm whack. It's nice to hear from you again. This one he says, Paul. An apostle. I mean, think about starting a letter that way. Stan, There's an issue here. And Paul's not ready to mince words. So it gives you just a little bit of an insight into how grievous, how grand the issue is in Paul's mind. Paul, an apostle. We'll get to that one in a second. The first thing we're going to ask ourselves is, Why is a letter written? What is the purpose? You're sitting here. Paul wrote a letter to the Galatians. He had to have a reason. So we need to talk a little bit about context. If you know anything about Paul, his name used to be Saul. He was a guy who, maybe in modern language, may be viewed as a prodigy. He was one who grew up a Jew of Jews. He was following the law. He was zealous for it. He was keeping it. You can find his uh, biography, if you will, his little autobiography throughout Scripture. You have writings of others. I kept the law from my youth. I was a part of it. I was with the leaders. I learned of the leaders. I learned underneath Gamaliel. I understood the Old Testament. I understood Mosaic law. I was in the Torah, and I was zealous for the Lord. He even had a kingship name, Saul. If you look in Acts chapter 9, and maybe we will here in a second, he was on his way to persecute the churches. He was there at the stoning of Stephen. He was getting the allowance to go and capture all of these individuals who are preaching this false gospel called Christianity. He was looking to drag them up to put them into prison. And then, on the road to Damascus, you know what, we do need to read it, Acts chapter 9, if you're looking with me, turn left in your Bible, you can see me here turning left, Acts chapter 9 is just a few books back, starting in verse, should be verse 1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of our Lord, that's the way he was known, went to the high priests and asked them for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way being Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. In chains, if you will. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul was out there persecuting the church. He was a Jew of Jews. He understood the law. He understood what it meant. He was keeper of the law. And Jesus himself came to him in a vision. The resurrected Christ. And the rest of the story is Paul was converted right there. Or better yet said, Saul was converted right there. God took him from blindness and let him see. That whom he was persecuting became the Lord of his life. It's a little bit of the background. Now, Paul, when he does something, he does it all the way. When he was persecuting the churches, he was persecuting. And Paul's not a middle-of-the-road guy. If if I'm against you, I'm going to come kill you. If I'm for you, I'm going to become a missionary. So Paul became a missionary he starts going around. On his first missionary journey, he goes around into Galatia, which is now modern Turkey. And he goes down and he starts preaching the gospel of the good news to all those that were there. Some Jews, some not, some Greeks, some others. And because of the power the Holy Spirit was with him, people accepted the message. That it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And people were converted, and they gave their life to Jesus Christ. And churches were planted. Churches such as this, if you will, were launched. And the name of Jesus Christ was glorified. And he spent time with them, and he taught them, and he left. And when he left, over time, what came back to him was a word. Things are falling apart in the churches of the region of Galatia. What had happened was people had come in, troublemakers, if you will, taking the doctrine of Jesus Christ and perverting it, changing it, adding to it. We see a little glimpse of this jump ahead in verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. Galatians is the letter written in response to this controversy. I left you with the knowledge that it is in Jesus Christ, the finished work alone, that will save you from your sins, saving you from how you have failed in the law. And now I'm hearing that there are those who are distorting that gospel, and I feel the need to write to you, and I'm saying, Paul, an apostle. Why does he say An apostle. He obviously is not mincing words here. Why is it important for him to say Paul, an apostle? Because an apostle carried very significant and very unique authority. The apostles, by definition, the the term generally means to be sent out, one who is sent. So by that definition, all believers are sent out. If we sent someone from this church out, they would be an apostle of the grace of Christ. That is the broad term. But there's a very narrow term where it means the ones who Christ had specifically selected to share his doctrine and to plant his church. That there is very specific authority. We won't take the time to read it, but if you're taking notes, this is healthy. You will find it in Luke chapter 6. You will find it, I believe, in Mark chapter 3. There's the accounts where Jesus himself had his disciples gathered, many disciples. And he said, out of all of his disciples, his follower, he selected 12 apostles whom he segregated and dedicated for the work. That was to come. There are many who follow or hear. There are some who follow disciples. And there were the few that were particularly chosen to be apostles. To carry the authority of Christ's words to the nations. Now, they they were going to be characterized by certain things. One is they were to be specifically called out by Christ. The disciples knew that Jesus called in Luke 6, you'll see. He called these people by name. And it's recorded for us in Luke and Mark. And they were supposed to be specifically selected by Christ. Number two, they would have needed to have seen the risen Christ. We have Luke 6, 1 Corinthians 15. You will see they will have needed to have seen the risen Christ. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 you will see that they needed to have signs and wonders and miracles to authenticate their authority. Those were the apostles. And Paul is now saying, I am writing to you as an apostle. In 1 Corinthians it says, as one is untimely born. All the other apostles were selected here, Judas Iscariot being one of them. And then in a different manner, In a later manner, so he calls himself the least of all the apostles because he was one who persecuted the church. As to one untimely born, one of the uh, translations puts it, I was called to be an apostle. I was called by Christ himself in a road to Damascus. I saw the risen Lord, and if you read throughout the accounts of Scripture, you have seen my authority because I perform miracles and signs and wonders in your name. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God, the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the other brothers who are with me. Give an account. It is important for us to know this because we are sitting here today reading this letter. We need to know that the letter that we read has the authority of the stamp of God himself on it. It is the inspired word of God through Apostle Paul to the Church of Galatia and to the Church of all ages, universal here today in Akron, Ohio. This is God's word for you and for me. And this is powerful, and it's also sad that the issue that Paul was dealing with in the Galatian church is the same issue that we're still dealing with in our lives today. So it's perfectly appropriate. That's the controversy. Adding the law or works the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ alone. And he brings out the curse. Follow along with me again in 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Verse 10 is very clear. Basically, if you miss one point of the law, who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. If you were here, Brad gave us all the you know, the 600 and some you know, commandments, the, the many do's and the many don'ts. Who could do them all? But if you failed in one, you have failed the law. For all who rely on the works of the law, are under a curse. Now, Paul expands this theme. In the interest of time, I'll just give you the verses. He does this a lot. Romans is great. If you want to read a book that might be a contemporary of Galatians, you got to spend some time in Romans. You don't have to go very far. Romans chapter 3, verse 12. There is no one who does good. No one. 320. No one is justified by the law because the law brings the knowledge of sin. By the law... We were able to see that we're in sin. And in Romans 4.15, the law itself brings wrath. Because the law it is that shows our transgression. So it can be a friend until we are not able to keep it. And then it is our accuser. Then it highlights the curse that we are under. To, for some reason, to Paul, this was self-evident. In, in, in verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. I think he's basically saying, you know the law. You've done it. We've talked about this before. You know I can talk to you, Stan. I know, I know where you broke it yourself. I know where you broke it against me. Now, this is evident. This should be self-evident. If you're just paying attention at all. We are under a curse. We have fallen short and we can't make it. In verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The curse of the law. It's hard for us to gasp this language, but God is basically telling to us here that the law is like a flashlight. If you're walking around and you have the law, which God gave us, it will illuminate where we step outside of it. The law has a purpose. It is not to save. It is to point out how far we are from righteous and holy God and his standards. I submit to you that this is our key human issue. Sounds like a nice philosophical point, doesn't it, Jan? A philosophical point here that this is our key human issue, that we fight against our pride to accept this, that we can't do it. We're going to even give lip service and maybe even head knowledge to it. We might even nod our head. If I ask, would you agree that we can't do it? You probably get a lot of people, and then we're going to leave here. What are we going to do? We're going to go try and do it. I'm not trying to do it but I'm just going to try a little more. We're kind of stuck. This is our this is it. This is the issue. How do we get past this? How do we get past our pride? I want to give you a second illustration. Uh, Annie actually gave me this when we were talking about we were talking about life and the issues here and we were uh, talking about the kids. And the illustration kind of came out of this. Sabrina, our youngest one, if you know Sabrina, you know, Sabrina's had a challenge in learning how to swim, and she was younger, she was six years old, so whatever, so couldn't swim at all, seven years old. She knows she can't swim. She knew good and well she couldn't swim. Scared to be alone, daddy don't leave me, daddy don't leave me, scared to be alone. So she didn't want her floaties on, we're at the pool, and we're like, listen, Sabrina, I'm gonna go get the drinks and stuff. You know, you can. Oh, I know I can't swim. You know, I'm not. Don't go in the pool, I'm not going to the pool. Daddy turns his back, what does she do? Dives in, what are you doing? I wanna to try to swim. You know you can't swim. I know. I wanted to dive in. I forget if it was Annie that saved her or or who, but somebody had to dive in. It's our key human issue. Even when we know we can't do it, we want to give it a try. You know, one of the two things that we do to complement this, we, we try to get around it. One of the things that we do is say, well, here's what I'm going to do I'm not going to compare myself against God's righteous law, I'm going to compare myself against my friends and my peers. And I'm going to conveniently make sure my friends and my peers do just a little worse than me. Then I look around and go, I know God is grading on a curve. He has to. Somebody's got to make it. And out of this group, it's going to be me. And we think we don't do that. We do it all the time. They're not making it. They're not making it. I know God is love. Somebody's making it. That somebody's got to be me. If you start slipping, just get worse friends. Don't worry if I befriend you it's not going to be an issue. I'm not saying anything. The other issue that we, how we deal with this is we train ourselves to think, well, God blessed us. We're the most materially successful nation on this earth. And as a family, we are successful people in this successful nation. God blesses those he approves of. Because I've been blessed, I'm approved of. If I'm approved of, I go to heaven. The stuff proves that I'm going to heaven. I wouldn't have this unless God loved me. That's a dangerous game, and we play it all the time. We wonder how we lull ourselves into sleep. These are some of the ways. Other religions don't have any answer We we talked about it. They just try harder. The world has a third answer. We don't do it all the time. Postmodernism is a nice phrase. It's fun to study if if you like. We just heard a little bit of talk from Oz Guinness just this weekend uh, down at the chapel talking about some of the issues of modernism and postmodernism. Postmodernism has one flavor to it that people kind of point to a lot is the idea of relative truth, absolute truth being gone. And it's a thought that you think it's not out there, it's out there. It's out there everywhere. It's out there in the church. It's out in schools. It's out in higher society. Absolute truth doesn't exist. Right and wrong don't exist. Right and wrong are individual choices depending on what you think it to be. So since the world doesn't want to deal with this issue of we failed, they decided to change the definition. What's right is right for you, and it could be wrong for you, and it might be right here and wrong there, and it's like nothing is really right or wrong, it's just how it is to you. If you can get away with that little, you know, you know magic and, and shift of language, you've gotten rid of this issue of being under the law, and gotten rid of this issue under the curse, or at least you think you have. I heard a uh, sermon this week, I can't remember who it was, I turned in halfway, he was giving an illustration, he was speaking to somebody, and they were dealing with right and wrong, I think they were dealing with an abortion issue, and the individual that he was talking to wanted to say, no, I can't feel that I can judge anybody, everybody can do what they want. He goes, well, is it right or wrong? It depends. If it's wrong for somebody, it's wrong. If it's right for somebody, it's right. Went through this whole conversation, couldn't get anywhere. And then the person says, you know, but I have been struggling with something. I don't know, you're a pastor. Maybe I can talk to you. So the conversation shifted. And he says, you know, I got a roommate. I got this roommate, great friend of mine. We have a signed contract. He hasn't been paying his rent. And our contract says, if you don't pay your rent, you can't stay here. Because I need the money to pay for the overhead and the bills and everything else. So the roommate's not paying his rent. And he goes, what should I do? And the pastor, you know, being a little quick on his feet, and goes, well, I think that for him, it's right not to pay rent. And for you, it's right to be a little bit miffed. Well, what should I do? He goes, well, clearly, you just got to love him and hug him because he's doing what's right in his mind. He looked at him like, oh. He goes, do you want to know what I really think? He goes, yeah. He goes, he owes you rent. Kick him out. And the guy got it. You can't play these fancy games with words and meaning. It's either right or it's wrong. And when it affected him, he knew the difference between right and wrong, the moral law, and even in the Old Testament Mosaic law. That's the world's answer, and it doesn't work. God spent 2,000 years, minimum, more, maybe several thousand more, showing us that it doesn't work. Take as long as you like. Here it is. Try And we realized by an entire set of evidence, all kinds of other human history, all types of issues with the Persians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians, oh my goodness, you know, Genghis Khan and everybody else in between, it can't be done. Man cannot live in harmony. We're fallen, we hurt each other, we need a better answer. That's where Paul jumps into the cure. We had the controversy. We had the curse, and thank God Almighty, we got a cure. It would be bad to end right here, wouldn't it? It would be a little bit dispossessing. Christ redeemed us from the curse. I'm in verse 13. From the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Now that's a a verse that we need to reread over and over. That Christ became a curse for us. For us, for it is written that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. One of the issues here, one of the reasons that the Jews had a hard time accepting Jesus Christ to be the Messiah that was proclaimed, that was prophesied in the Old Testament, was because they knew, because it was a public demonstration, that he hung on a tree. They said the Messiah is going to come in glory. The Messiah is going to come in all things and, and, and in power and in majesty and in holiness. Even if he came in a more humble manner, the one way he wouldn't come is being hung on a tree. Because the Old Testament tells us clearly that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. They had a problem with this until like, the eyes were open and Apostle Paul was able to see, because he had an issue with that himself, that Christ became a curse for us. There is a penalty That needed to be paid. In verse 13 and 14. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. To the whole world really. So that we might receive the promised spirit of Christ through faith. What we're talking about here is a concept called substitutionary atonement. That Christ died in our place. That Christ not only died in our place but he took the penalty of our sin. On him, that we who were under the curse, Christ became literally a curse for us. He who had no sin, who was not under the curse, who was the giver of the law, came under the law to be a curse for us, to take the curse off of us. Because we could not keep it perfectly. He who kept it perfectly became what he was not, a sinner judged so that we could be what he is, standing righteous, holy in the eyes of Almighty God. Those are things I just like to think about and praise God over. So what is the outcome We're seeing here the outcome. Let us go in verse 3 of chapter 1. We're going to jump back in as we bring it home. Grace to you and peace. The outcome of what is coming in, Paul starts with it first. What will come is grace to you. If you accept the free grace of Jesus Christ, peace will be its outflow. You will have peace with God. The chasm that exists, the hole that is in our heart, the emptiness that we feel, the purpose that is gone, the brokenness, the fact that we know we're outside of the law. Whether we admit it to anybody or not. Whether we fight furiously to proclaim to others and to convince others that we are keepers of the law, that we're good enough. We know that's a sham inside of our hearts. We know it. Grace And peace will come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because right here he's talking about it again. Paul can't help himself. Verse 4, he summarizes it. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and Father. I have to read it for you in Romans since we're making Romans our second theme here today. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Yeah, maybe I could get an amen on that. Amen. It sets us free. We're talking about outflows now. So we are now eternally brought into communion with God Almighty. Our eternal life begins now and goes on everlasting with Christ Jesus our Lord. The penalty of our sin has been paid and we have relationship restored. But I want to give you a practical outflow. So if we're on the branch here and you know, we're on the limb of God's grace for us and he sets us eternally free, if we go out a little further branch, well, it will manifest itself in our life is the ability to become exactly who we are supposed to be. I hope you can follow this thought because to me it's very, very powerful. So much of our life is putting on masks. The masquerade, we do it in church, we do it in our families, we do it in our neighborhoods, friends, school, jobs. We're trying to show how good we are. We have a hard time. We go right back. Hey, what are you saved? I'm saved in Christ. Tell me a little about it. Then we start telling them everything good what we're doing so people think well of us. The real issues of our heart, the lust that's in our minds, the greed that we have, the anger and viciousness towards others, that we keep so well hidden often. We walk around with a mask. We're trying to become, we look at somebody else. You know, it was a, a Brennan Manning, I told Dean, is one of my favorite uh, speakers. And he's a, he's a man who tried to do everything the right way. And he says his goal in life was to become Brother Teresa. I kind of have that kind of goal. I would like people to think well of me. I would sometimes be a chameleon and adjust to what people, you need me to be this, I'll be that. You need me to be that, I want to be accepted. I want to be good. I want to get your applause. I want to do it well. And I'm wearing a mask. You won't applaud me if I'm this way. The grace of Jesus Christ as a real outflow in our life today allows us to be the perfect, unique individual that God created us to be. If he called you to be a singer, sing. If he called you to paint, paint. If he called you to build things, build. If he called you to help people in nursing, help them. Be who you are in Christ Jesus and let him make you all that you are supposed to be. That is grace also realize now. Satan and the bondage of sin will not let us live that way. Grace in Christ Jesus will let us live that way. And then it will allow us to accept the beauty of the diversity that exists in the bondage of the love of Christ. So in summary, we have the controversy that we're adding the law to the finished work of Jesus Christ. The curse is that the sin condemns us and the cure is that Jesus Christ redeems us and he brought us home. The Christian question or the question that Christ might ask is, what would you rather get? What you deserve or what I don't deserve. When I think about this, I simultaneously, do you ever have this? I want to bow and weep in my brokenness, and at the same time I want to just shout and dance and sing all on the same time. I'm not sure which one is more appropriate when I think about this. I do know that the more we see a vision, of the resurrected Christ like Paul did in Acts chapter 9, the more we will understand his majesty, his glory, his transcendence, and the more we'll understand our sin, our fallen character, our depravity, our lostness. If we focus on him, we will see how far we are. And if we focus on him, we will see how he takes us back up to him. Are we still singing Jesus Messiah at the end? All right, amen. I thought we were. And for me, this song is a beautiful praise and it's a beautiful, beautiful prayer. If you don't know Christ as you hear this song, I'd like you to accept him as his free gift for your life. Think about what he's done. He did it for you, he came to us while we were yet sinners that we could become the friends of God. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, use it as a time to reflect, to remember, and to confess that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we call him Abba Father. I think it's appropriate if we kneel together and pray. Dear God and Father, we are so thankful that you have preserved your word. We are so thankful that you've left your Holy Spirit to guide us, to teach us. And we ask you, Lord, now that as we leave this place, you do not leave us alone. You have promised you will stay with us, that you will prod our hearts, that you will bring us into communion with you. You are the hound of heaven who is fervently pursuing us into a love relationship with you. Lord, when we stray, thank you for gathering us back. When we slip, we thank you for your blood on the cross that saved us from our sins, past, present, and future. We thank you, Lord, that you have allowed us to live a new life in the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. I ask, Lord, for anybody here who does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, and it is fighting the battle that we all fight to do it ourselves that you will take away that burden and carry it for them. They will let you carry it. For those of us, Lord, that we proclaim this with our lips, I ask that you capture our hearts, capture our minds, that we can be a living example of one who is broken and yet saved at the same time. Jesus, you are a Messiah. We rest only in you.